Will you open in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 10? As we come to the end of the book of Ezra this morning, it's worth recalling the beginning of the book. If you've been here with us for the last 10 weeks or so, you'll remember that as Ezra starts, it starts with high hopes for the future. Uh, God's people in exile are being restored to their land uh, to rebuild the temple and to maintain Torah and to observe God's law so that there will be God's people in God's place, under God's rule, living in God's blessed presence. And as we read chapter 10, I want you to ask yourself, is that what we see? Has this come to pass? Is this the idyllic, abundant restoration promised by all the prophets? We'll read Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 to 19, then we'll skip a list of 100 names, and then we will read verses 43 and 44. So let's read God's word together. Ezra chapter 10. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. And so they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days by the order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeit, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly, let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jeziah, the son of Tikva, opposed this, and Mesholam and Shabbatai the Levite supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. And on the first month of the t first day of the 10th month, they sat down to examine the matter. 
And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women, Maaseah, Eleazar, Jarib, and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Then there are a hundred names who likewise are found guilty. And then in verse 43, of the sons of Nebo, Jael, Mattathiah, Zabad, Zabina, Jadai, Joel, Benaniah. All these had married foreign women. Some of the women had even borne children. The end. Are we there yet? Is this what was promised? Is this what is longed for? Is this what's expected? I spent a fair amount of time this week trying to think of a less satisfying ending to the book of Ezra, and I could not come up with one. And yet this is what happened, and this is what Ezra records, and this is what we, what we have here. And I want you to keep that in mind because we will come back to that thought at the end of our time together. But for now, I just want to say, if you didn't notice, this is an extremely difficult uh, challenging passage that we need to approach with humility uh, and with prayer. So let, let's pray together. Lord God, your thoughts are above our thoughts. Your ways are above our ways. I pray you give us humility and hope as we come to your word now. Help us not to colonize the text with modern notions that are alien to it. Uh, but help us also understand that so much of our offended sense of justice as we read these things is formed by those same scriptures and by your tender care for the oppressed and the marginalized. Give us a longing for holiness, a readiness to respond in faith, and the confidence that what you require, you also graciously provide. It's in Christ's name we live and pray. Amen. I had an extremely happy childhood, but uh, my brothers and I did fight from time to time. And I remember one time after a fight, I heard noises in my mother's room. And so I walked back there and looked in the door and my mother was on her bed, just weeping, just weeping. And something clicked in my six-year-old mind and I realized my sin has caused this pain for my mother and somehow Soon I was weeping. Soon we all were weeping. And that is, something like that is what's happening here in verse 1 of chapter 10. We see Ezra weeping and casting himself down before the temple, uh, and the people begin to gather, men, women, children, all gathering around him, and they begin to weep as well. And you see it's a very large number of people who gather together. They're broken over sin. Uh, but today's chapter shows us, as one commentator said, that it's not enough to be broken over sin. We need to break with sin. Sometimes breaking with sin involves massive personal cost. As we go through this text, we'll see in the first five verses, what is the sin? What, what is actually the sin that's being uh, discussed? And then in the rest of the chapter, we'll see the solution. So sin, solution and talk about how it relates to us today. So what's the sin? In verse 2, we see the sin named clearly in, uh, by Shechaniah. He says, we have broken faith with God. 
And so the sin primarily, fundamentally, first and foremost, is breaking faith with God by breaking the covenant. God desires to have a holy, exclusive covenant relationship with his people, and the people have broken that covenant. Then as you continue on in verse 2, you see the specific form of that faithlessness that we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Now, if you were here last week, you heard Scott Redd say the same thing. It's important to know right up front what this is not, what, is, what the sin is not. It's not interracial marriage. It is not inter-ethnic marriage or international marriage because we know from Scripture the marriage of Jews and non-Jews was allowed. Can anyone think of an example? Yeah, there are many, actually. Uh, It's even celebrated, but it's only that provided that the foreigner trusted in Yahweh. So you think of, for example, Boaz and Ruth, someone said. Ruth was a Moabite, but she trusted in in God. Likewise, even here in Ezra, in chapter 6 and verse 21, it's clear that the non-Israelites were welcomed fully into the worshiping community as long as, it says, those people separated from the uncleanness, from the idolatry of the land, to worship the Lord God of Israel. So the issue is not ethnic, but religious. And yet it's articulated in ethnic terms, why? Because in those days, there there was almost an identity between your people and your God. And so you see that kind of way of articulating it in scripture. If you've been with us for a while here through this series, you'll recall Ezra's commission from the Persian king was to go to Israel, examine the situation, and surprisingly, to enforce the law of his God, of Yahweh, in Israel. And he was a scribe. He was an expert in Mosaic law, so he would have been very well equipped to know uh, that both Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7, multiple places in the scriptures, um, there's a prohibition on marrying foreign women. And Deuteronomy 7 explains why. It says, because they will turn your sons and daughters away from following me. That's the issue here. Mothers are extremely influential in their children's lives. And and we see right here that having someone in the home who worships something besides the one true God threatens the existence of that community to fulfill its mission, which was to live as a holy people set apart following God's law. The issue isn't that these foreign wives are horrible people. The issue is, as Bruce Waltke says, marriages to idol worshipers threaten to steal Israel's heart away from loyalty to Yahweh. And if that was the case, then Israel's mission in the world would be compromised. They would cease to be a holy people set apart for the worship of God to be a blessing to the nations and to point those nations to the holy God. They would become absorbed and they would simply become like those around them who worship worthless gods made in their own image. And what good would that do anyone? And we read on in Ezra 10, verses 2 and 3, we learn more about the nature of these relationships. Uh, we have broken faith with our God, they say, and married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Let us make a covenant or renew a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children. We get a little clue in the text. The words used here are not the typical words for marriage or divorce in Hebrew. Um, And that's a clue that something unusual is happening. Then if you combine that with Malachi's preaching, which was happening roughly around uh, this time, uh, he he says in chapter 2 that some of the men of Judah have been faithless to the wives of their youth and profane the holiness of the Lord by then going on to marry 
daughters of strange gods. In light of that context, it's possible what's happening here is the annulment of illegitimate marriages. It's equally possible that the, what's happening is the dissolution of marriages that were acceptable to the broader society, but contrary to God's law. Like all sin, the situation is a mess. Some men had dumped their faithful Jewish wives to marry idolaters. Others were just living together. Others had directly married uh, women who worshiped another god for socioeconomic uh, alliances or gain. One commentator, thinking about the application for us today, says this, like ancient Israel, our own sexual practices cannot be separated from our faithfulness in worship. This is worth reflecting on. Our sexual practices cannot be separated from our faithfulness in worship. But even if these are annulments, this passage is still shocking to us as modern years, is it not? There's, there is a reason that there are not many refrigerator magnets uh, about Ezra 10. It just, this chapter does not sit well with our sense of justice. What's going on here? So I want to take a minute to address that. And if you scan forward in the passage a little bit, it's good to see the process, verses 14 to 17. Um, we see this was not a blunt process. It was actually done very, very carefully and wisely. Um, everyone involved was called. They were examined individually. And it happened over the course of several months, these interviews. And they happened with local officials who knew the context of the situation, who knew the nuance of the situation. And surely in the course of those interviews, it may have been learned that some of the foreign wives had converted to worshiping Yahweh, like a Ruth type of situation, and they would have stayed and remained, while the others, many others, obviously had not, at least 110. Ezra also does not tell us exactly what happened to the women and children who were sent away, but that does not mean that they weren't cared for. We see in verse 4 that this is all to be done according to the law. And the greatest interpreter of the law, Jesus Christ, uh, said that the meaning of the law was to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, so common practice at the time would have been for women to return to their extended families, able to remarry. We see things like that in Ruth chapter 1 with Orpah and Ruth being sent by Naomi, uh, with Tamar in, Ex or, excuse me, in Genesis 38, other places. Uh, they would have received back their dowry and actually, there are a lot of reasons to believe these marriages had happened for social and political reasons among the upper classes. So if, in fact, they were returning to family, they would have been returning to a stable uh, situation with custody of their children, which was the common practice at the time. But still, modern people reading this text want to hear their voices say, what, what, what did they think about all this? What did, they, what did the women and children think about this? And if you're asking that, if you're wondering that, it's a good impulse it's an impulse shaped by, guess what? The Bible. <laughs> uh, it's an impulse that is shaped by, by the fact that we see throughout the rest of Scripture that God cares uh, about those on the margins and that, in fact, he, he does quite a lot uh, for them, both in his law and in uh, the work of Christ. But that is not the primary concern of, of this text, and this is the text we're in today. Uh, the primary concern is holiness, the primary concern is God and his demand for an uncompromised, exclusive covenant relationship with his people that will not be threatened by these other 
relationships. That can look unreasonable, can look selfish to modern sensibilities, but we need to be careful. Just on the men's retreat this weekend, we were exhorted and reminded, we need to be careful not to treat God like he's just a really big guy, even a really big important guy. That he is holy, uh, our, our speaker Derek reminded, he's transcendently unique, he's outside it all, he is creator and everything else is creation. And so what that means is that he is the source of life and blessing and joy, the only ultimate source of all of that. So that Andrew Schmutzer writes, to the extent that humans compromise their relationship to God, they compromise their prospects for true fulfillment and lasting satisfaction, no matter how tempting the alternative may seem. Complete faithfulness to God then is not only pleasing to him, it's good for us. It's good for you. It's good for me. Prioritizing any other, any created thing in that way would be terrible idolatry. And that's the issue. That's what's happening. That's the danger. But prioritizing God like that isn't only faithful, it's necessary for our flourishing. Moving on in the text, we see the sin in verses one to five. The sin is ma'al, it's unfaithfulness. If unfaithfulness is the sin, what's the solution? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. God's unfaithful people need to be made faithful. How? Well, a first step we see is repentance. Repentance is turning from sin and to God. We heard that in the, in the song that the choir sang. It's turning away from the weariness of sin to the face of God. And we see that in the text too. Gerald Bilks points out there's a comprehensiveness of repentance. It's repentance of the, the heart, of the head, and of the hands. Verse one, the heart, they are weeping. Their hearts are broken over their sin. Verses three, four, 12, we see that they, with their lips, with their, their heads, they make, they renew the covenant and they make promises to address these relationships. And then in verse 19, we see a repentance of the hands where they actually make offering for sin and they pledge, which in Hebrew literally is, they give their hands uh, to make these vows, to fulfill these vows. There are lots of wrong ideas about rep what repentance is. Kids, here's a wrong idea about repentance. Believe it or not, I've seen it before. You're mean to your sister, and you cross your arms and you say the right thing. Sorry. It's not repentance. Uh, husbands, you mean to your wife, you cross your arms and say the right thing. Sorry. Not repentance. Repentance is this comprehensive. It's a change of heart, metanoia. It's not, also, it's not just tears over the consequences of our sin. That's sorry for me. It's, it's, it's sadness that we have wronged a holy God. That's repentance, and it's turning to him. So having wept in public in verse one, Ezra then mourns in private in verse six, he withdraws to fast and to pray over the faithlessness of the exiles. And in the meantime, in verses seven and eight, the rest of the people resolve to act swiftly and decisively to deal with the sin. And their actions reinforce this idea that I said at the beginning, that it's not enough to be broken over sin. We need to break, make a break with our sin. We see that, the sooner the better. It's proclaimed everyone needs to assemble in Jerusalem within three days, which was physically possible they were close in at that time. If anyone refuses to face and completely deal with this known sin in their midst, then they would face discipline, banishment from the congregation and the loss of their property. And so you see uh, taking sin seriously, so seriously that they refuse to delay. They gather in the middle of winter, so they're all shivering because of the, because of the rainy season and the cold. 
Verse 10 and 11, Ezra restates the charge according to God's law. He says, you have broken faith, married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. So notice the issue is not only these marriages, it's really any alliance that is drawing the people away from doing the will of the Lord and from obeying his covenant. And in verse 12, all the people respond with a loud voice and said, say, as you have said, we will do. And if you know your Bibles, you're hearing echoes of other covenant renewals in Exodus. Ezra seems ready for immediate action. He was an action guy, but the people say, whoa, 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 verse 13 to 14. This is too big of a mess. And we need some people with local knowledge. And so they call um, for, for a different process. And we've already talked about that. It was thorough. And after months of inquiries, only 110 out of over 40,000 people uh, are found to be guilty of, of this law breaking. And yet, it's painful to think about the consequences at the ground level of what it meant to untangle the sin. There's no way around that. And yet, still they do it. Not just being broken over sin, but breaking with sin, renewing the covenant. Okay. As we look to today, there are several things that I think this passage means uh, for that this passage means for us. First, the sins of a few people can impact the entire community. Why are they taking this so seriously? That's why. It's especially true for the sins of leaders, and that's what we see. If we had read all those names on the list, you would have said that the, seen that the Levites and the priests, who should have known God's law best, are named first. And sadly, today there are entire podcasts and books reminding us how true. This still is. The sins of a few people can impact the witness and flourishing of the entire community. So we need to be very wary of bowing to the idol of individual autonomy that says, you can talk about sins, but don't come in here and talk about my sin. That's a bridge too far. It's my private life. In fact, an important part of church membership is actually this invitation that we make to each other as we make those promises that says, right now, some, I know that I am a sinner and someday I may be in a place where I don't want to hear about my sin. I'm inviting you now to speak to me because then I won't be ready to invite you. Part of what we do in our membership. Listen, that sin that you think you've contained behind closed doors is already hurting others more than you know. And if it's not dealt with, it will hurt many more people more than you know. That's why God's dealings with us are certainly personal, but they're not always private. The sins of a few people can impact the whole community, so we need to be lovingly vigilant for holiness. Second, what if you find yourself married to someone who doesn't share your faith in Christ? Maybe I should have made this clear earlier, but Ezra 10 is not, not an authorization uh, to leave them or to separate from that spouse. It's descriptive for then, not prescriptive for now. In fact, the New Testament makes crystal clear that if a Christian is married to a non-Christian, the Christian should remain with their non-Christian spouse, 1 Corinthians 7, and you should pray for your spouse to know the freedom and the joy that you have, and you should lovingly uh, seek to help them come to your faith in, in, with your respectful and pure conduct, it says in 1 Peter chapter 3. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes that in some mysterious way, the unbelieving spouse is actually made holy by the believing spouse. And that's for another day. 
Having said that to those who are married, who are already married, to remain. Now to the unmarried, uh, we see that this text is giving the strongest warning not to marry outside the faith. Uh, this idea carries through from Exodus to Deuteronomy to Ezra and Nehemiah and on into 2 Corinthians. Uh, in Ezra's day, the people had put their families before the word of God. Many of the people put family over word of God. They had put, as Scott said last week, secondary things over primary things. And we can be tempted to do the same in our day. It may not be marriage. It may just be saying family is the, the most important thing. It's a very important thing, but we don't want to worship the gifts over the giver. And there's a warning here about that. But it may be marriage. It may be that you're thinking about prioritizing an actionable or desirable or advantageous uh, marriage with someone who does not worship the Lord over finding someone to pursue the Lord wholeheartedly with. And there's a caution here that to knowingly make the most important person in your life someone who doesn't also share your founda this foundational commitment is to confuse priorities, to risk idolatries. Finally, in terms of application, we see in this text that breaking with sin is urgent even if it comes at a massive personal cost. It costs these families, costs the community, it costs time, reputation, emotional pain. This was a costly thing. It costs so many things. And the same may be true for you today. There may be some sin in your life that you're dimly aware of or that you're all too aware of that you're hesitant to deal with because you know it's going to be costly. One pastor wrote, it's easy for Christians to become inappropriately comfortable with the awareness of sin in our lives. But failing to address sin assumes or implies that holiness doesn't matter. And we serve a God who says from the beginning to the end of scripture, be holy as I am holy. Failing to address sin, tolerating a little sin here and there is like tolerating some germs in the operating room. It might seem fine for a while, but it will have terribly serious consequences. So what's the sin? It's breaking faith. What's the solution? It's repentance and faithfulness, namely that God's unfaithful people need to be made faithful. But the fact still remains that Ezra 10 is a brutally unsatisfying ending to a book that began with so much hope. It started out as this beautiful return from exile, and now it's stained. And if you know your Bibles, you know that the reforms of chapter 10 feel a lot less like the coming of God's glorious kingdom and a lot more like the same old story for the last 800 years. Like a return to the judge's cycle of sin. Like a return to Solomon building the temple and then being led astray by his foreign wives, idolaters. Like a return to what we've seen before from God's people. This cycle of stability, sin, instability and exile, repentance, stability, sin, and it spirals down and down and down, generation after generation. When's it going to end? Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles are the, the last books of the Hebrew Bible. And each of them gives these extensive genealogies because each of them is looking for the godly offspring promised in Genesis 3. At the very beginning, 
So the very end, they say, where is this offspring promised who will crush the head of the serpent? Will it come from the priests? Nope, they're here marrying idolaters. Will it come from the kings of Judah? No, they're leading the people into sin. They're leading the way into sin. Will it come from the prophets? No one's listening to them. Curtains close. End of the Hebrew Bible. Silence for 400 years. Now listen, if you're watching a show and season one ends like that, what do you know? You know there's going to be a season two, right? And that's exactly what we see in Matthew 1, 1, which opens with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Israel's entire history showed them and us that they could not, in their own efforts, produce the promised one. But God's miraculous intervention produces through them the promised son who fulfills all the promises and he, Jesus, provides the definitive break with sin. Jesus Christ is the solution for how we break with sin, how we're made faithful. We receive, we rest on him. He provides us with the Holy Spirit so that our lives become more faithful, both in terms of our status before God and in terms of our practice as we're sanctified even now by his grace. Then he takes the church as his bride. And instead of being made unclean by his bride, he washes and he sanctifies and he cleanses each of us so that when God sits down in judgment to examine the matter, we will be found. We will be kept secure and we will be found pure and blameless, never cast off. That's why the final chapters of the New Testament are not this tear-filled unmarriage that we see here in Ezra. The final chapters of the New Testament are a joyful marriage feast where every tear has been wiped away. The unfaithful have been made faithful. And the presence of God means all joy and no pain. That's our hope. That's the end of the story. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, these are heavy things, painful things to see, and we see in the unfaithfulness of your people then a reflection of our, so often our unfaithfulness now. And we give thanks for the work of Jesus on our behalf, both to pay the penalty for our sin and to give us his righteousness and his perfect faithfulness, God. I pray for anyone here who has not known him, has not received or rested on him, they would do that today and know the joy and the peace and the rest that comes in that. I pray for the many of us here who have done that maybe many years ago, that we would be renewed in our passion for holiness, being used by you, drawn by your spirit, and saying with the psalmist, this God, his way is perfect. Amen.